Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. I've learned you just have to keep moving. That's the key. <laughs> I'm setting up for an interview in a hotel room in Montreal. So we'll go for like 15 minutes, sorry, 20 minutes. Okay. Okay. There's more fanfare than usual. Handlers, a camera crew, someone taking photos. If you can take a few while Taylor and I are rocking out. All right. The woman in front of me does a lot of press. It's not even noon, and she's already spent a couple of hours with a documentary crew from the UK. This is the podcast documentary we're doing on disinformation in Canada. I tell her that over the last few months, we've interviewed Freedom Convoy protesters, people in the anti-vax community, and conspiratorial influencers. And the kind of takeaway from this whole thing is they are mostly not malicious. They're just deep down rabbit holes. Yeah, they got flooded. There are few people in the world who understand this as well as Frances Haugen. In the run-up to the 2016 U.S. election, she says she lost a friend down the rabbit hole of online misinformation. She wanted to do something about it, which eventually brought her to Facebook. I used to work at Facebook on something called civic misinformation. Frances spent more than two years at Facebook working on their civic integrity team. But during her time there, the misinformation problem only got worse. And she says Facebook, which is now called Meta, didn't seem particularly interested in fixing it. So they had a pretty clear window into the nature of this problem? Yes, they have a good understanding of what are the drivers that make these problems worse. They're just not willing to accept the costs of addressing those problems. Francis says Facebook dissolved their civic integrity team in 2020. And when that happened, she realized it wasn't going to be possible to change Facebook from the inside. So she preserved tens of thousands of internal documents, slide decks, research briefs, and policy proposals, and shared them with Congress and the SEC. Frances Haugen was blowing the whistle. Good afternoon, Chairman Blumenthal, Ranking Member Blackburn, and members of the subcommittee. My name is Frances Haugen, I used to work at Facebook. I joined Facebook because I think Facebook has the potential to bring out the best in us. But I'm here today because I believe Facebook's products harm children, stoke division, and weaken our democracy. I'm Taylor Owen. And I'm Sapria Devetti. On this season of Screen Time, we're trying to figure out how we ended up in a world where facts are fluid and your reality is a reflection of your ideology. From TVO Today, Antica Productions, and the Center for Media, Technology, and Democracy at McGill University, this is Screen Time, the battle for reality. So what do platforms know about the problem of disinformation? Over the last, say, six years, so going back to 2016, 
Platforms like Meta, so that's Facebook and Instagram, have learned a huge amount about what drives misinformation on their systems. And those trends have changed over time. So if we roll back in time to 2016, I would say probably the largest actor that drove misinformation was commercial interests. That you had startups, misinformation startups, if you will, in places like Macedonia. Back when Donald Trump was running for election in 2016, the misinformation complex was rooted in countries like Macedonia, which was infamous for its cottage industry of fake news sites. So back in 2016, they realized, oh my goodness, if we don't pay attention to these misinformation entrepreneurs, they'll flood the platform. Over time, they've realized there are other factors that are driving a lot of these problems. One of the major ones was in 2018, Facebook changed their system to prioritize content that could get engagement. That means a click, a like, a reshare. And it happened to be that bias towards content that was more extreme because people are drawn to click on that content. In recent years, it's become clear that this is the fundamental problem, not just with Facebook, but with most social media platforms, an algorithm that pushes people towards increasingly extreme and divisive content. As I spoke to Francis, I couldn't help but think of Patrick Phillips, the doctor we spoke to earlier in the series. At the start of the pandemic, Dr. Phillips had taken to social media to criticize the government's COVID protocols. Why are you just locking down when there's other things that we can do? And then appeared to fall down a conspiratorial rabbit hole. Yeah, I believe that likely Pierre Trudeau is not Justin Trudeau's father. I wanted to ask Francis how social media algorithms, like the ones they use at Facebook, could lead someone to those kinds of ideas. It really seems like these people aren't necessarily malicious. They start off potentially questioning COVID protocols, and they end up in deep conspiracy theory worlds. I would say it even starts more tame than that. You have people who aren't even questioning the protocol. There's people who want to learn about the protocol. But then the Facebook algorithm kicks into gear. Let's imagine there's 100 pieces of COVID content. That content doesn't get evenly distributed throughout the system. A lot of that content will circulate in, say, Facebook groups, which might have hundreds of thousands of members. And content that is more likely to get a click will get sorted to the top of the pile. So let's say every day you get a couple thousand pieces of content from that group, but only maybe 20 pieces of content actually get sent to people's inboxes. If you have a bias in your algorithm, the most extreme content is the one that you see. And there are little choices in how the products are designed that amplify this effect. So for example, if you have a post where people start fighting, Every new comment on that post will bump the post back up to the top of the feed. So if you have, a, let's say, a, a mom's group and someone writes in saying, one of my children has leukemia, I'm thinking about vaccinating the rest of the family, what should I do? You'll often get a pylon where people will begin saying how dangerous this is. Now, to be clear, this hypothetical mom's group could be filled with thoughtful, rational people making thoughtful, rational posts. But there's no drama in someone sharing public health data showing that vaccines are safe. The post that's devolved into a screaming match, on the other hand, now that's engaging. So Facebook prioritizes that post over other, more boring content. And so if you were just a normal, rational person and you saw 
the same posts showing up at the top of your feed over and over again saying how dangerous something is, you might come to the conclusion it was dangerous too. When we look at the stats on COVID-19 misinformation specifically, I worked on a project at Facebook that was looking at targeted misinformation. And as part of that project, we divided the United States into 600 sub-communities. When we looked at who received the misinformation, 80% of the COVID misinformation went to 4% of the population in the United States. And so the average person saw very little COVID misinformation. But a small number of people, it was like their whole feeds. Again, this is a byproduct of the algorithm. Once you start to express interest in something as innocuous as COVID protocols, the floodgates open and you can become inundated with misinformation. But what's even more concerning is that this misinformation may not even be coming from people you know. Facebook has run experiments where they divide all the content on the platform into two pools. Content you consented to, that's things like you chose your friends, you chose the pages you followed, chose the groups you joined. And there's content that you did not consent to. That's things like your friend put a comment on something and now the post shows up in your feed. Or someone invited you to a group and Facebook put you in that group for 30 days as if you had joined. And because you wrote a comment saying that's misinformation on something, now you're a member of that group. If all you do is prioritize content from people you consented to over people you didn't consent to, you get less violence, less hate speech, and less nudity. Your friends and family are not the problem. According to Francis, the real problem is something called coordinated inauthentic behavior. It's inauthentic because people often misconstrue who they are. Like maybe they're located in a different country. Maybe they have taken on a persona that you might find more trustworthy. Or maybe they're playing both sides. This might sound familiar. Think of Russia trying to inflame tensions at the Freedom Convoy or meddle in the election of Donald Trump. They'll send misinformation both to conservative groups and to liberal groups. They might push out a narrative to make it look like it's coming from everywhere at once. They might jump on people's posts of people who are trying to debug that misinformation and make them look not credible. That coordination is very, very dangerous because it makes it look like a different reality exists. You'd think that Meta would be doing everything in its power to make sure that bad actors can't use Facebook to distort reality. But many of the design choices they've made are actually making the problem worse. I'll give you an example. Let's imagine a post shows in your feed, and there's a link to a news article. Facebook makes a choice every time it lets you reshare that article without reading the link that you just included. Facebook has run experiments where they say, hey, You can't share links unless you click on them first. And it's amazing. You get like 10% less misinformation. Have you censored anyone? No. You haven't picked what are good or bad ideas. You've just said you need to actually consume information before you share it. Facebook has done other studies on misinformation too. In one, they looked at what would happen if they prevented users from sharing something after it had left the social circle of the person who initially posted it. You have to make a conscious choice to spread this information further. We're going to gray out the reshare button. That single action has the same impact on misinformation that the entire third-party fact-checking program has. As Francis points out, these kinds of technical solutions are effective, nonpartisan, and relatively easy to execute. 
So why isn't Facebook implementing them? When you gray out the reshare button for things that are beyond friends of friends, it means that slightly less content gets circulated within the system. And so it's one of these things where Facebook is weighing the very, very small business hit um, because they don't have to be accountable for how much misinformation is on their systems. They choose not to take that tiny business hit because they don't have to. Frances Haugen now spends most of her time advocating for more oversight of big tech companies like Meta. I really believe in the power of people directing information to people. You know, back in 2008, when we got the news feed, no one was saying Facebook is ruining democracy, right? I talked about earlier the idea that Facebook has run experiments where if they just give you what you asked for and not what they think you want, you get less violence, less hate speech, less nudity. I think social media that helps us connect with our friends and family is really, really powerful. Communications that are facilitated and directed by computers are very, very dangerous because computers don't understand the side effects of how they were programmed. And that's really unsafe. There is something Francis said there that caught my attention. Communications that are facilitated by computers are dangerous because computers don't understand the side effects of how they were programmed. Of course, she's talking about social media algorithms, but she could just as easily be talking about another technology, artificial intelligence. For the past year or so, people have been really excited about how AI might transform the way we work and the way we communicate with one another. But a lot of experts are also sounding the alarm about what might happen if AI is left unregulated. In part because AI has the potential to make the misinformation problem exponentially worse. The last six months, there have been really significant shifts in a number of areas of what we call synthetic media, which is the ability to create realistic images or audio of events that never happened. This is Sam Gregory. He's the executive director of a human rights network called Witness. For the last five years, I've led an initiative called Prepare, Don't Panic that's focused on globally inclusive preparation for the threat of deepfakes and AI-generated media. That threat that Sam is talking about is quickly becoming a reality. New AI tools make it easy to create photorealistic images with a computer. Maybe you saw the photos of the Pope wearing a puffer jacket. Totally fake, but pretty convincing. One newspaper in Brazil even used the puffer jacket photo for a story on the Pope. And then there's AI audio. Audio has been improving rapidly, primarily in relation to how much audio you need and how flexible it is to basically be used for any audio sample you provide, right? To mimic, you know, different environments, different sounds of like a phone call or something like that. You can imagine the implications of this. Think about getting a scam call from an AI that sounds exactly like your boss or your mom. Yeah, it's wild and scary. But just how good is this new synthetic audio? Well, this isn't my real voice. This is an AI version of me that cost next to nothing to make. Okay, so this cheap AI generator doesn't do the best Supriya impression. But this technology is getting better. Fast. 
So as we project ahead, it's good to not make very firm projections about where we're going on this in the next year and a half, two years, even up to, say, you know, upcoming elections in Canada in, I guess, 2025, right? You've got a lot of ways in which that can change over that time. The speed with which artificial intelligence is evolving is hard to comprehend. Just look at something like ChatGPT. Ten years ago, chatbots were an irritating customer service tool, that thing you had to interact with before you could talk to an actual human. But today, tools like GPT-4 from the company OpenAI can be used to write college-level essays, code entire websites, and draft legal claims. Or they could be used to flood the internet with misinformation. One strategy if you want to disrupt an information ecosystem and undermine trust in existing authorities is to share lots of contradictory pieces of information and sort of flood the space with internally inconsistent pieces of information. And so the ability to automate creating apparently real looking pieces of information, to have them shared from multiple different places in a way that isn't like the kind of copy pasta, right? Like that sort of copy pasta where it's like everything is the same and it's clearly a bot doing it. I think there's a broader one that obviously people worry about, which is like, what happens when this starts to not be just like a coordinated attempt to sort of fill up an information space, but when does this fill, you know, our search engine results? This second scenario is likely what happened when that newspaper in Brazil accidentally published a fake picture of the Pope. Presumably someone did a fairly lazy image search and pulled that image because it was a really prominent Pope image, right? So we have a kind of a mis- and disinformation problem, which is how does this contribute to ways in which people try and pollute information environments, confuse people, target people. And you have a broader issue, which is just like the more AI-generated information you create, how does that displace and confuse our broader information environment in ways we might be able to anticipate and might not be able to anticipate? And of course, in all the areas, it sometimes doesn't matter whether it's completely convincing in order to have its impact. So the accessibility, the ease of use, the ability for people to do it in commercial tools makes a difference, even if it's not perfect. This seems counterintuitive. You'd think that the most convincing deepfakes would be the most impactful. But Sam says that's not necessarily the case. In fact, when it's not totally high quality is actually when it can be really hard to pass it out because it sort of falls into this gray area of it could be, it might be, it might not, and then it links to confirmation bias, it links into what we want to believe. It's many of the other poor quality deepfakes or questioned videos creating chaos rather than the high quality ones. I, I congratulate you for this wonderful conference. I want to... One example of this was in 2019, when somebody doctored a video of then U.S. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi to make it sound like she was drunk. I'm not going to say your initials. I want to say the whole word here. Uh, uh, the American Road and Transportation Builders Association. You couldn't even really call it a deep fake. Somebody had just slowed down a video of Pelosi. And yet the video was seen millions of times and retweeted by people like Rudy Giuliani. I think there's a lesson in there somewhere. The Pelosi video was crude and easily debunked, but it still worked. It reminds me of some of the conspiracy theories around COVID. It's not physically possible to inject a microchip into a vaccine. And yet millions of people around the world became convinced that Bill Gates had done exactly that during the pandemic. That particular conspiracy theory doesn't just strain credulity, it snaps it in too. But in some ways, that's beside the point. 
The particular details of any one conspiracy theory are almost irrelevant. What matters are the emotions and the narratives that they tap into. Social media and artificial intelligence are almost certainly making the misinformation problem worse. And governments around the world, including Canada's, have been late to the game when it comes to regulating them. But conspiracy theories, institutional distrust, and political polarization existed long before social media. And they'll continue to exist long after we outgrow Facebook and Twitter. Which means that, fundamentally, this is also a human problem, not just a technological one. And that means it requires a human solution. You know, with Albertans, they they like to be involved in the process. They like a heads up. Selena Paley, the founder of the alternative media outlet Freedom Central, who we profiled in our first episode, thinks the solution is obvious. People just want to be included in the decisions that affect their lives. We didn't get any heads up with the pandemic, with the vaccines, you know, and that's just kind of been the approach from the federal government and some of their counterparts is just this is what we're doing, whether you like it or not. We feel like we are not being included. And so therefore we're like, okay, well, then you must have a separate agenda going on here. What is it? That's just common sense. This sentiment ran through many of our other conversations, too. Patrick Phillips, the doctor who lost his medical license, didn't feel like the government was listening to him either. There's two different worlds almost, right? And the sides aren't really acknowledged, which definitely does breed uh, some mistrust and because they're not even acknowledging the evidence that we're bringing forward. Uh, even if they reject it, that's one thing, but it, you need to at least acknowledge it and have some vigorous debate around it. A lot of people don't trust anything right now because of the trauma they've gone through from the government the last few years. Colin Big Bear Ross, the influencer from last episode, thinks there's only one way forward. Trust is about building relationships, and it comes down to communication. And if we're going to build trust with ourselves in our local communities, we actually have to pick up the phone and start talking with each other. I think a lot of people feel disrespected and talked down to or ignored often by the quote-unquote gatekeepers. And I would like to think that some of that initiative and energy could be harnessed in more pro-social ways rather than condescended to. This is Peter McLeod. He's been trying to get people to talk to one another for years now through his democracy organization, Mass LBP. One of the more interesting assemblies we've run was actually between two very small communities on Vancouver Island. Two communities which had actually been the same municipality, and then they split, and then the joke was they've spent the last hundred years trying to, like, get back together. What Peter is describing here is something called a citizens' assembly, where a group of people from all walks of life come together to try and tackle a policy issue. We had members who volunteered who were strenuously <laughs> opposed or in favor of the unification of these two municipalities. What was different is that we didn't ask them for their preference on the first day. We asked them to introduce themselves. We asked them to tell us about what they like about their community. They thought they knew their communities. Turns out they didn't know half as much as they thought they did. And they certainly didn't know 
their neighbors as well as maybe they had assumed either. And at the end of the day with these 36 people, if it had been roughly divided at the outset, by the end of it, there was unanimous support to recommend amalgamation. Peter says citizens' assemblies really do work. And not just for relatively low-stakes problems like this one. In Ireland, for example, 99 citizens were tasked with solving one of the country's thorniest social issues, abortion. These are topics on which you know, reasonable people can hold very different views and which our media often hands to us in accentuated terms, right? They sharpen the debate. And what we don't have then are platforms where people are actually able to explore not only where they disagree, but where they actually happen to agree or how they've come to hold those views. And that's where I think citizens' assemblies are so valuable because they bring people from every walk of life together. They give them quality information. But you know, perhaps most critically, they give people the time that we so often lack when we're thin slicing between headlines and competing views. You know, a lot of our world comes at us so quick. It's just like pattern recognition. But in a citizen's assembly, because it's not adversarial, because no one's trying to fight the next election, because they have 40 or 100 or 150 hours together, they've got the time to maybe take a slower and more appreciative view of those differences. And that's part of helping people come to a consensus. After two years of deliberation, the Citizens' Assembly in Ireland recommended that the constitutional ban on abortion be repealed. And a year later, in one of the most Catholic countries in the world, abortion became legal through a referendum. 99 citizens had managed to do what thousands of politicians couldn't. In country after country, we, we see demonstrated for us that capability of citizens, but to basically play a much more substantive role than simply being a voter. And the results mean that we're actually addressing the polarization that we see so rife in society, which turns out to have been largely manufactured. Most people can find their way to common ground. Citizens' assemblies reveal a fundamental truth about humans. We're not nearly as polarized as we think. But we need to actually talk to each other, face-to-face, -face, and not just on social media, in order to realize that. I don't want to give anyone the sense that citizens' assemblies are like these kind of Pollyanna-ish utopias where suddenly, you know, peace breaks out. No, it's that people have to behave like grown-ups, they have to be accountable to each other for what they say. And yeah, maybe they temper their views. We read social signals constantly. And there is a kind of pro-social norm that takes hold where people want to get along with each other. They don't want to be seen as an outlier. They want to produce recommendations that will be seen as thoughtful, long-term, public-spirited. That's the structural bias of the process. You might be wondering what citizens' assemblies have to do with misinformation. But remember, 
often the people buying into conspiracy theories are people who feel like they don't have a voice. And citizens' assemblies are one way to give people that voice. We find ourselves kind of caught between two new polarities, between a progressive but very technocratic culture of government in the West and then this populist alternative. And there needs to be a kind of new third way. I think that is one where the state and government works with people rather than presuming to work for them. I think the single greatest problem with democracy right now is that we've really got our wires crossed. In a democracy, it is ruled by, for, and of the people. And I think in this era of an increasingly professionalized, managerial approach to democracy, we have the tendency to look at the public as being a risk, a risk that has to be managed, a risk that has to be contained, a risk that has to be, to some degree, manipulated, rather than what it ought to be. In a democracy, the public is a resource. When we set out to make this podcast, we wanted to answer one question. How did Canada become so misinformed? How did we get to a place where one in four Canadians believe in online conspiracy theories? Where thousands of people think a global pandemic was orchestrated by a nefarious group of elites? It's hard to know for sure why someone might be drawn to these kinds of beliefs. But what we do know is this. These conspiracy theories are often created and promoted by people who are actively trying to mislead us. And the social media platforms amplify these conspiracies because it's profitable to do so. Before we started this project, this is the story we thought we were going to tell. A story about the people who peddle conspiracy theories and the social media companies who help spread them. But when we actually spoke to the Canadians whose worldviews are shaped by misinformation, we realized it's a lot more complicated than that. The people occupying these alternate realities sometimes believe things that are unequivocally false. But while the facts might be wrong, the underlying stories they're telling often ring true. Stories about who has power in our society and who doesn't. This whole time, we've been trying to figure out how to win the battle for reality. How to convince people to believe the same things that we believe. But maybe we've been looking at this all wrong. Conspiracy theories aren't going anywhere, and there will always be people who are willing to deceive in order to earn a quick buck or score political points. But maybe we can make it so that those conspiracy theories are less appealing. Maybe we can build a world where people feel like they have a voice and our institutions actually listen. A world where people don't need to turn to conspiracy theories to make sense of a society that's leaving them behind. Maybe the fight to build that world Maybe that's the battle for reality. The Battle for Reality is written and produced by Mitchell Stewart. It's hosted by Sapria Dovetti and me, Taylor Owen. 
Our associate producer is Emily Morantz. Mixing and sound design by Mitchell Stewart. Our associate audio editor is Cameron McIver. Our executive producers are Stuart Cox and Laura Regeer. Lori Few is the executive producer of Digital at TVO. Shariar Tadvidi is the managing editor of podcasts and digital video at TVO. If you want to know where we got our information from, we've included an annotated transcript in the show notes. Thank you.